0: Flat out Outfano, you're with Laddie H, host of Flat Out Pride on your Free FM DAM. If you're a Waikato local with an idea for your own show, Free FM would love to hear from you. Check out our website, freefm.org.nz, or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello, here we are once again looking at the attitude changing text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by Namkar Pell. I'm happy that you could join the program and pray it will be of some benefit to you. But before we get into the gist of today's proceedings, let's set our motivation as usual. And as usual, let's try to make that motivation bodhicitta, the wish to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. If our motivation is only for ourselves, any benefit will only go to one person. But if we intend the benefit to go to all beings, Can you see how much greater that is? Instead of only helping one being, we want our program to help more beings than we can possibly count in a whole lifetime. Therefore, the positive potential will be enormous. So please, if you can, motivate that all beings everywhere can benefit from what we discussed today. That would be wonderful. Thank you. We ended last week's program with a quote from Geshe Dagi, a Tibetan master who has passed on, but who has many disciples around the world and who established a Buddhist center in Dunedin. I chose the quote to illustrate Nam Karpel's commentary on the third of five powers, the power of remorse, that he mentions in his text. Earlier, we had already covered the first two powers, the power of intention, and the power of the white seed. And in his commentary on this third power, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, the third is the force of eliminating all at once, which means to give up completely all at once what we've set our minds on giving up, our selfishness, our disturbing attitudes, our self-preoccupation, our grasping for a truly established self, and so forth. Deciding that we are not going to let ourselves come under the influence of these attitudes, we say, I'm not going to let myself become proud, arrogant or selfish. And if the situation arises in which I find myself acting that way, I'm going to apply the the opponent forces. Last week, we saw that our biggest enemy is the grasping at an inherently existing self and then cherishing that self above all others. All our problems come out of that grasping and cherishing. As Nam Karpel says, understanding their disadvantages, as were explained earlier in the context of exchanging self for others, we should try to give up such disturbing emotions as the misconception of self, the self-centered attitude it gives rise to, and the inclination to neglect others by means of regret. And you may remember that we ended last week's program were the teachings on the dangers of self-cherishing by Geshe who said, We must all admit that we have the fault of self-cherishing. Only the Buddha does not have it. We should recognize this fault in ourselves and try to eliminate it. If we at least realize we have a self-cherishing attitude, it will be a great progress. In the teaching he goes on to explain what is so destructive about self-cherishing. He says, Self-cherishing wastes all of our previous efforts and holds back our progress. It should be recognized as a poison depriving us of the essence of life. Always make an effort to destroy this self-cherishing attitude. Whatever our practice, it should be done to eliminate the attitude of self-cherishing. One Kadampa Geshe said that whenever he reads a text, he regards all bad qualities described as his own, and all good qualities as belonging to others, and thus he fights self-cherishing. One cannot have the quality of bodhicitta without lessening one's self-cherishing. With bodhicitta and compassion, opposition to self-cherishing becomes stronger, and compassion takes over and establishes a wish-fulfilling tree within ourselves. If you practice compassion, the positive effects of compassion will outweigh the ageless negative effects of self-cherishing. Geshe Potawa said, In a certain area of Penpo, no one was more happy than Geshe Kamlungpa. And in another place, the same held true for Geshe Changawa. This was because they had eliminated self-cherishing. Geshe Changawa was so poor that he rarely ate and only had a patched leather skirt to wear. But still he felt rich and said, Now I can sponsor the whole universe. A self-cherishing attitude is caused by grasping for truly established existence and is the biggest block to the development of bodhicitta. In one text it is stated, the wish-fulfilling gem is having compassion for all sentient beings. Never realizing this, we have diverted ourselves. Instead of holding grudges against self-cherishing and ego-grasping, we hold grudges against sentient beings as our enemies and hold our true enemies as our friends. Another text says, The biggest ghost and demon is not found outside, but inside the haunted house of the body in the form of self-cherishing. Geshe goes on, With Bodhicitta, we can destroy our self-cherishing attitude. It is because of self-cherishing that we are the recipients of harm from evil spirits, making us defensive against criticism and abuse and causing us to be immoral. With the aim of satisfying our own desires, we act with self-cherishing and make pleasing ourselves our major concern and project. One cannot help displeasing others sometimes, but with self-cherishing, we belittle and harm others as a major activity in order to please the self. Self Self-cherishing causes much pride and jealousy. If someone else gains something, Even though you may say congratulations, you feel jealous that you do not have it yourself. If there is no self-cherishing attitude, then instead of being jealous, you will accumulate positive potential by rejoicing in the gains of others. The reason for disunity in life is self-cherishing. If you have a strong self-cherishing attitude, you will be very defensive, clash with others, have little patience, and feel that everything others do annoys you and makes you uptight. There exists much disunity between husbands and wives, parents and children, because of such defensiveness. Geshe Hidagi continues, Another Kadam Geshe was a thief until he was 40. Even though he had many acres of land to cultivate, he became a bandit. During the day he robbed passers-by, while at night he broke into houses. One day he changed his ways, became spiritual, and destroyed his self-cherishing attitude. He said, Before I could not find food, but now I get so many offerings that the food cannot find my mouth. All of these things are helpful to think about in the development of bodhicitta. Locking yourself in a cave with a self-cherishing attitude the size of Mount Meru would prove useless. But if you can lessen your self-cherishing attitude, then staying in solitude could be very beneficial and that is Geshidagi. And on the website Tsogni tsognirinbushay, another great Tibetan master, gives a very good explanation how this self-cherishing comes about as we develop our ego, or more accurately, our four egos. Now I find this quite fascinating as I've not heard this explanation before, and this is how he describes it. Soon after being born as a human, there is the merest taste of a perceiver perceiving something. This slight duality is registered because we have a human body and the physical senses themselves have an ability to register touch, sight, taste, sound and sensation as conventional perceptions. At that time, there is no naming of these sense-based experiences as happening to a me. It's just in the nature of being alive as a human. This is the mere ego, and it is built into all humans and underlies the structure of your personality. Along with a mere ego, we're all born with a built in human program that determines the unfolding of humanness. Its presence in our human nature determines the course of the human experience, the same as other beings. Caterpillars become butterflies and do butterfly activities. Humans go from being human babies to children adolescents, adults, and on into aging. At each stage, there is a distinct appearance of the body, cognitive development, emotional reactions, elaborate interactions, and complex human activities. For example, let's look at the development of the human personality, something taken very seriously in the West. There are actually four egos. The first, the mere ego, is built into the personality's foundation. It comes with birth and remains undisturbed by the development that follows. During the first two years after birth, the mere perceptions of this seeming reality begin to solidify into two separate experiences, in here and out there. Through family life, general acculturation, ongoing language acquisition and education, we become increasingly separated from the world around us. Forgetting the truth of indivisibility that remains known to the uncomplicated mere ego. We've become reified or realified by a more fixated, solid ego that obscures the experience of mereness This happens to everyone, and with its formation an external world also forms. And so everyday misperception, the illusion of reality begins. The second ego, this reified ego is not very personal, it relates to general reality, and within that is a reference point of a solid me, but not with much directed emotion or self-story. However, developmentally overlapping at this stage, the reified ego receives the imprints of emotional experiences, and along with everything else with which we identify, these experiences inform our sense of self. As self-cherishing ego begins to emerge around two and a half years of age, it becomes more self-interested and continues to develop over the next several years alongside the reified or fixated ego. This third self-cherishing ego is keenly aware of being me, a me that is tender, excitable and easily hurt. The impact of people and events during these early years is experienced emotionally as well as conceptually. This impact is registered in the physical and subtle body and this shapes the personality. Togni Rinpoche continues, For human beings, the emotional impact of people and events is useful information when navigating in the seeming world. It's akin to burning a hand, and after it heals, the spot that was burnt has a cellular memory of the burn quite some time afterwards, when we are just near a flame, we will feel the burning sensation in the same spot, even though the fire is not touching it. It's like that with emotional imprints in the subtle body. It's through the evolving self-cherishing ego that people re-experience those early emotional imprints. Each culture narrates these experiences differently. In Western and American culture in particular, These experiences are usually narrated as traumas or wounds and this perception informs and shapes self-cherishing egos with a fair amount of neediness. In Eastern cultures, the impact of emotions is not considered as important and isn't narrated with the same intense self-stories that are told in the West. Either way, the imprints of these experiences remain in the subtle body But for Westerners, it seems they create powerful emotional tangles of self-doubt, positive self-images and a desire to have a perfect, flawless ego. Because they reside in the subtle body, these imprints go on to inform relationships throughout life, becoming the background for the evolution of the social ego. The social ego is the fourth ego and it is built on the reified ego's sense of solidity, as well as the self-cherishing ego's neediness. The social ego strives for acceptance and approval. Actually, it's more like trying to avoid disapproval and disappointment in oneself through attachment to the outcome of actions that are thought to be reflections on the social ego itself. If we think we can derive a sense of well-being from a successful social ego, we're making a big mistake, because the social ego is very unstable unpredictable and impermanent, not a good foundation for well-being. It's like building a house on quicksand. Nor is the self-cherishing ego a good foundation for a truly healthy human being, capable of unconditional love. In fact, neither the self-cherishing ego nor the social ego leads to opening the heart of compassion. However, by understanding the four ego states, We are in a position to deconstruct our ego clinging experiences and strong emotional reactions through practice. Leading on from this, Rinpoche then asks, Who actually practices the Dharma? And he replies to this question with Dharma teachings emphasize egolessness, yet, we can identify four ego states that produce a sense of an individual. These four egos aren't as solid as a noun implies. They behave more like verbs. They are an active, conditioned flux, impermanent but recognizable as relative experience. Through these relative experiences, humans do many things, including Dharma practice. But if there is no solid, independent self, then who is practicing the Dharma? It's mere I, the subtle experience of self that begins at birth. Although we can experience the mere I, it's not an independent, autonomous, permanent entity. It's neither virtuous nor non-virtuous and isn't affected by a phenomenal experience. If the perceptions of mere I could be sustained at all times, the whole of phenomena would be perceived as mere illusion or a mere dream. But we don't sustain mere I experiences even though everything in existence is mere. You are mere. Sleeping and dreaming are mere. Marriage and having kids are mere. The stock market is mere. Food, houses and mountains, everything is mere. But even with a good intellectual understanding of this, things are not experienced this way because solid reality has become ingrained in our perception. This perceived reality blocks awareness of the mereness of everything, including the mereness of ourselves. So we don't perceive ourselves as mere I. In general, we strive to maintain the illusion that we're entities that really exist, solid as nouns, nouns with very complicated egos and complex lives. How does this illusion happen? From the moment of human birth, reality is taught, and with this conditioning of the mind comes the formation of the second ego, the reified I. As soon as we are born, there is a declaration of it's a boy or it's a girl, and so our reified self, our reified life begins. Over time, this reified I believes it exists. However, in Buddhism we discover that this reification is a realification, nothing more than conditioned misconception. But once this conditioned misconception begins, it grows rapidly taking over all of our perception, including perception of a self, of a me. It's not easy to break through the solidity of this seeming reality with the understanding that it's all delusion, all a dream. How often do we say to ourselves, this is a mere dream as we go through our day? When we're angry or happy, do we think this? No. When we experience suffering, we don't think, ah, Suffering is showing me the defects of this samsaric impermanent existence. Instead, it's more like, Oh, how dreadful! This will last forever! I'm finished now! Without missing a beat, people think this because the perception of the reified eye has become automatic. What can we do about this misperception? Well, we can examine the nature of things and see that nothing is independent with a true nature of its own. But still the idea itself doesn't help very much. Even scientists, after investigating the nature of reality, come to the same conclusions as Buddhism, but they're only convinced intellectually. Their everyday experiences are like everyone else's, with a reified eye. When they face a problem, it's as real and solid as the next person's problem. Why does it work this way? Because conditioned perception automatically takes precedence over intellectual understanding we don't react according to theory but according to our conditioning which is the accumulated experience that's been heavily influenced by habitual reification by rendering everything solid with its own inherent nature reified fixation of all phenomena is the basis of our samsaric experiences based on the reified eye and starting around the age of two and a half The next player in ego's world makes its debut. By the time a child is four years old, the third eye is recognizable as a self centered, self cherishing eye, ready to meet and greet the outside world, generally on its own terms. It not only knows that it exists, it also knows it exists as a me with a lot of mine. It is the center of the universe and will venture forth full of naive curiosity and self-importance. Although the self-cherishing ego believes it's the central reference point of all it experiences, its basic quality is not self-confidence, but thin-skinned excitability while trying to master its domain. It has a lively interest in itself and in the world, yet it is easily hurt, angry or frightened, by some of the feedback it receives. This self-centered third eye is also vigilantly aware of its own existence and how it's being perceived and treated. Developmentally, this is considered the natural evolution of the human personality. But from the Buddhist perspective, we're well on the way to being isolated self-centered beings clinging to me, cherishing ourselves and protecting ourselves from the perceived slights of others. This Third eye takes a lot of maintenance. Slowly but consistently this is how we come to live with the third eye's original operating system embedded deeply in the subtle body running the show. We usually can't place our finger on what makes us so uneasy but we tend to take it personally. When the self-cherishing ego feels the inevitable unsubstantiality and changeability of life it feels like a personal weakness. Or something shameful. Frequently, we feel we should be stronger or better than we are. We don't get it that it's not personal. It's just the nature of all impermanent compounded things, including me. Yet we go on believing we need to protect the self cherishing I, which we think is our real self, from being hurt, lonely, or misunderstood by others. So much effort and suffering. Goes into making sure this third eye is loved. Over time, the third eye's internal self importance becomes well established, and perception narrows and shuts down even more. Impermanence and suffering are now a personal insult. The self cherishing eye deserves to be happy, happy, happy with no impermanence or no suffering. Of course, this is difficult to maintain because the nature of life is not like that. So the self-cherishing ego says, "Mm, I'm smart, I'm a Buddhist, I know things change, and I know there's suffering, but I deserve happiness, comfort, and not having it so hard. I think I can make sure I'm happy, even though there's impermanence. I know my mind isn't going to find happiness without me making it happen, so I really need to be in charge. I can make myself happy. I can do it. So we look towards something we can do that might bring happiness. For example, imagine that once Rinpoche started teaching, this thought crossed his mind. People are so happy with my teaching, they liked Sogni Tsogni Rinpoche. With This idea, self-cherishing ego, the third eye, perks up and starts to get involved, clinging to the identity of being a terrific teacher. Imagine that as success grows, so did a fourth eye, the social I, fed by a strong identification with being a successful teacher. Social I probably tried hard to please Sogni Rinpoche's students once the feedback began. Finally, social I may have thought, my student said Sogni Rinpoche is a good teacher, is funny and smart, and now I also believe it. Why? We can easily imagine that it gave social I satisfaction to know it could produce such an admirable teacher. But it's not just about being self-satisfied. It feels like something more permanent. Well, like a me. Generally, there's little awareness that this me is as impermanent as all the other me's we've inhabited before. Or maybe we're afraid of its natural impermanence and fear it'll easily slip away if we don't work so hard at it. Either way, we want to see ourselves and have others see us in a certain way. So we hang on with hope and fear, maintaining the social eye no matter what. Now that's suffering. Social eye can even dominate Dharma practice. If someone says, oh, you're such a great sitter, such a great meditator, it's easy for social eye to start cultivating that self-image. The social eye's need to be recognized and admired becomes invested in how others see it sitting and soon it believes, yes, I'm a great sitter. The image of great sitter reflects who social eye wants to be. So now we expect it of ourselves but need others to keep telling us how great we are because impermanence makes it hard to hold on to all by itself. Actually though, most of the time others forget to say it. They're not attached to our social I. We are. When we don't get enough approval, a bit of a worry comes up from self-cherishing I, making social I wonder where it's gone wrong. Don't people love me anymore? Why have they stopped noticing? I've got to try harder, work harder. If maintenance of the self-cherishing I is hard, maintaining the social I is even harder. It takes a lot of people to sustain just one social I, and everyone's generally way too busy with their own social ego's needs to be very concerned about ours. And so we cling tightly to, to our self-images, making every effort to keep them, watching others to see how we are doing. To check on this for ourselves, let's see right now where we're at with our four egos. We don't have to be, worry about the mere eye; It's always invisibly with us. Invisible because it's not afflicted by reification and neediness. To see the reified eye, self centered eye, and social eye, we need to look at ourselves quite suddenly in a flash. When we do this, which one are we? Mostly, we'll find we're inhabiting the social eye. Approximately 90% of us stay there most of the time, worrying about the past and the future, trying to maintain the social eye with speedy lung. Even 20 minutes after trying to fall asleep, we might still be hanging on to the social eye. Thinking about what we said and did, how people felt about it, rehearsing what we need to do next. We're alone. Nobody's even looking at us. Yet there we are, involved with the social eye, reliving the day, planning the future. How can we stop the social eye's incessant obsession? Well, Rinpoche goes on to talk about slowing down. But we're going to have to explore that next time because we now have run out of time. We will continue with Stogny Rinpoche's explanation in our next program, but now, as we go, please dedicate all the positive potential from our discussion today to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. I hope you'll be with us again next week, but for now, thank you for being with us today. Go well and goodbye.